and welcome to We Are History. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. You're leading on this one this week, John. I am. I am. Um, because I'll be leading on next week's episode where we're going to be talking about quite a famous sort of invasion uh, battle, you know, soldiers and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but this week, John, you're going to be talking about women's suffrage. Well, I felt that if you're doing war... Then I get to do women and the <laughs> feminist issues. You know, I don't think it's my domain, but don't touch the barbecue, okay? I'll just put it like that. <laughs> the thing is, though, John, I mean, yes, we are discussing women's suffrage today, which is very exciting, but you did have a particular angle you wanted to come from, and yeah. that is the campaign against it. Basically, John wants us to hear more about why women shouldn't have got the vote. I just thought this is very a very interesting angle that something that we completely take for granted that yeah women have the vote that people were organised and felt passionately about it and were vehemently against women to get in the vote. Yeah, that's it. I mean that you know we we get taught about particularly the suffragettes a little bit about the suffragists, but we don't really get taught about well what you know what they were up against. Exactly. Why were they alarmed by women, the idea of women getting the vote? What were their arguments? How did they try and stop it happening? Um, so, yeah, this week's podcast is about the campaign to stop women getting the vote. And also, I always get into character when I talk about history. So if I feel too passionate when I'm advocating, I'm just in putting myself in their minds, Angela. You understand that? We're going to see a side of John O'Farrell today. I'm looking forward to this. So take us back, Angela. 1867, the National Society for Women's Suffrage had been formed. Um, which most of the time was led by a woman called Millicent Fawcett, who you may have heard of um, because she recently was commemorated with a statue, the first woman to be commemorated with a statue uh, in Westminster. Since Bodicea, I suppose. It's not in Westminster, though, is it, that statue? Where's that statue? Yeah, it's Westminster Bridge, Angela. The thing I read said she was the first woman to be maybe on the square. Right, yeah. See, already I'm patronising you, contradicting you. I know, right? So the Millicent Fawcett one, not to be confused with the recent statue of Mary Wollstonecroft, you know, with the silver tits. Didn't the artist say it wasn't of her? It was for her. It was representing her. her. I don't know if you... I mean, people Google it now. Stop now. Google the image of that because her pubic area looks like a broccoli. It's really weird. Well, it's part of the campaign. Vindication of women's rights and broccoli is very much what it was about. (laughs) So Millicent Fawcett was, I mean, do you know who her sister was, Millicent Fawcett? Uh, Her sister was Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, yeah, first female doctor. Bunch of high achievers. Pretty high achieving family, you know. Yeah, yeah, she was, um, she she got the name Fawcett from her husband, Henry Fawcett, the Liberal MP. He was a blind MP, actually, so she was his secretary and assisted him. You know, he was a suffrage supporter as well, and for decades they lobbied Parliament and uh, organised petitions and big public meetings and certain women were allowed to vote in local elections uh, in the 19th century and there were other rights for women advanced during all this time. But come the 20th century, the clamour was growing and then we see the arrival on the scene of the Pankhursts, which most people associate with the suffrage movement. In 1902, Christabel Pankhurst formed the Women's Social and Political Union. They had broken away from the Independent Labour Party and the, fa- the phrase suffragette that we hear now, that was first used uh, as an insult, as a, as a bit of ridicule by the Daily Mail, of course. Uh, but they wore it as a badge of honour. And they started saying, they we're suffragettes. The suffragette. Oh, suffragette. Yeah, we're we're going to be suffragettes because we're going to get the vote. See what they did there? Oh, clever. I see what they did. Oh, they did puns. That's just made me sort of love them a bit more. 
We're going to suffragette the vote. Oh, I love it. Writes itself. So for, for the purposes of this podcast, Suffragette mm. is the Women's Social and Political Union. The Pankhursts. So Pankhurst, yeah. And Suffragettes, Millicent Fawcett's lot, the law-abiding campaigners who've been plugging away for decades. Um, so we're not interested in them today. We're interested in the people trying to stop them. Are you, um, Angela? Now, okay, okay. Absolutely, I am, yes. I'm very, I, I don't believe I should have the vote, John. It's, um, I waste it every time. No, The House of Commons, obviously, all men. So there's no need to really fight the suffragists because they were polite campaigners and they were just told to be patient and you know you that, that's lovely dear that's lovely that that you want the fact if you just wait a minute we'll get round to that eventually we've just got some other important work to do and when yeah. we've done that maybe if there's time we'll come on to you you just hold tight <laughs> ladies all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it was like, actually, Andrew, I think, from reading about it. And yeah. obviously, the thing is that there were no votes in it because <laughs> the women couldn't vote the men out if they didn't give them the vote. Yeah. But the other thing you sh- you know, you have to say about this period is that there was, of course, at uh, this time, no universal male suffrage either. So yeah, only, it was a bit more complex. Vote, right? Yeah, yeah, well, a certain amount of property holders. And so it had been extended in the, in the Victorian times, but it wasn't universal. It certainly wasn't working class men that could vote. No. So when women were demanding votes for women... Many of them meant votes for certain women on the equal terms of the men who currently were voting. So property holders, not working class women, no servants, factory workers, etc. So that was like votes for Joanna Lumley, but not Stacey Dooley. (laughs) So many on the left were obviously not in favour of giving the vote to more posh people, which is what it would have been. Because all you're doing is increasing the franchise of the property owning middle and upper classes while yeah. the working classes still have none. So um, we sort of assume there wasn't resistance on the left. John Burns, the Labour MP for Battersea, called the suffragists the vixens in velvet. Is that supposed to be like an insult? Because I think that's pretty cool. I wouldn't mind being a vixen in velvet. <laughs> Angela <Yeah>. Barnes, vixen <laughs> in velvet. Marxists were only interested in class struggle. So anything that was a, a different division right between the genders did not concern them. So you had this, this situation yeah. that votes on extending franchise were defeated because some people opposed giving votes to any women uh, and they found themselves yeah. accidentally allied with uh, others who voted against it because it didn't get the votes to all women. Um, right. so, so the Labour Party was the first to come out in favour of votes for women, but they, they wanted, you know, the universal franchise. Yeah. One uh, proposal was that women property owners could get the vote, but not wives. So it would be just spinsters or widows. So you end up with this ridiculous situation where a woman could have the vote before she gets married. She loses it when she gets married and then gets it back again if she's widowed. Well, seems fair enough to me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. When I get married in September, I hope they strip me of the vote. Yeah. I, I will yeah. obviously be led by whatever Matt thinks is right. Well, this is what it was. That was actually what it was. I mean, even yeah, in... Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their, their political opinions would be those of their husbands anyway. So what was the point of giving them yeah. the vote? Uh, the point was made about this marriage thing was that the respectable married woman would be unable to vote, but prostitutes would and would, <gasps> and, and might be marshaled into the polling booths by their managers. By their managers. I think, I think we'd imported the word, the word pimp. pimp didn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> that came in from America <laughs> a little bit later than this. <laughs> Yeah, but the actual sort of arguments against women's suffrage were pretty much what you'd expect. Um, I'm going to say, Angela, it's a strong word, but some of these Mm. guys, they were a little, well, they were a little bit sexist. No, I don't believe it, John. I think think their motivations were pure and godly, not sexist. Well, it was said that women were at any given time likely to be menstruating, 
pregnant, breastfeeding or going through the menopause. And so with all these emotional pressures, women could not be relied on to make the calm and rational decisions. You got a point there, Angela, haven't they? Do you know what, John? She's getting hysterical. She's getting hysterical. (laughs) I've had my fair share of PMT, but it's never made me go, right, fuck it, I'm voting Brexit. Oh, right, right. Do you know what I mean? Calm down. It's never... (laughs) Oh, you're so lucky we're doing this on Zoom, John O'Farrell. I'd love to see you have done that if we were in the same room. Ow, ooh, ow, Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, they likened using the vote to operating heavy machinery. Right. That's... Which A, it isn't. No. And B, women can do perfectly well. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, there weren't many women train drivers back then, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the male train drivers couldn't vote right. either. So quite what... Yeah. It, I don't know. It's, um... yeah, well, they managed to get away with a lot of bollocks reading this book about it. I should, I should say the book I read about this to research this was... Uh, Separate Spheres by Brian Harrison. Uh, it's not in your bookshops, but I managed to get it out of the London Library. Um, you know, it's uh, fascinating. He's actually sort of really researched this right through. The antis, as they were called, uh, shared a belief that God had made the two genders different and they were to operate in different spheres and had different roles. What would they make of the gender revolution oh we're going through now, John? What would the antis make of that? They go, oh, if you, Id- two genders. if you identify as a man, that's fine, you can vote. I'm not sure. I can't see it. I can't see yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because women did have a role in public life. They were on school boards and, um, you know, poor law guardians. But A, they worried that giving women the vote and getting them involved in politics would take away women from their charity work. But B, they felt very strongly that the state must rest on male physical force. Gee. There's no argument against that, Angela. No, I mean, it's worked really well, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, there's very much focus on Britain as an imperialist nation. Um, and the masculine traits of conquest and subjugation. And it was thought that the empire would not want a mother country that was feminine or something. Oh, yes, yes, a mother country that's (laughs) feminine. That would be a crazy idea, Yeah, wouldn't it? I mean, (laughs) and the difference between men and women was seen like an indication of our advanced European civilization. Let me just read this quote out. Lord Cromer, who is one of the um, leading anti-suffragists, said... uh, There is much more difference, both physically and morally, between an educated European man and woman than there is between a Negro and a Negress belonging to some savage Central African tribe. Jesus Christ. Different times, guys. Different times. It was very different times, wasn't it? I mean, this is smack bang in the middle of, you know, social Darwinism and eugenics and all of being the proponent theories, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's all part of that same... Yeah, and there's a sense that if Westminster was seen to be giving women the votes, then why not our imperialist subjects around the globe? Then Indians might want to start wanting to Yes, what next? The bloody people in the Caribbean will want their own votes. I mean, whatever next? The other thing this uh, author pointed out, which I thought was rather wonderful, is that those who oppose suffrage always begin their speeches with gushing appreciation of women and the wonderful work they did in other areas. It's always like, you're so valuable to us, ladies, doing your good work on the charity boards. (laughs) Basically, there was such a bunch of patronising twats, I've got to say, that um, it must have driven the suffragists mad. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? But, of course, women's suffrage wasn't the sort of primary concern of the government of the time, was it? We've got the the imperialist ideal of this country and there's a fear of the growing power of Germany. Yes. And they have very strict set-out roles for women and we might weaken ourselves if we veered from that traditional domestic model of woman in the home. Yes. We might look weak to to our 
European feisty neighbours. If we're not masculine. And the men who supported Votes for Women often had their masculinity challenged. It was like an effeminate thing to do. In 1910, Asquith, the Prime Minister, met a delegation of suffragists, which were several women, and he said, the most effeminate man they could find. And uh, another writer said that the homo was the legitimate child of the suffragist. Bloody hell. So if you want votes for women, your children are going to be gay. Yes, basically. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oh, God. And nothing, I mean, nothing upset the aunties more, did it, than that picture of a man coming home from a hard day's work at the bank, maybe. Yes. And... uh, the children are dirty, John, and unfed because his wife has been preoccupied with political campaigning. Where have we seen that play out? It's Mary Poppins, isn't it? It's Mary Poppins, <laughs> it's isn't like, it? It's the just... poor neglected children. Yeah. Then, of course, they resorted to the tactic of attacking the women themselves. There's one quote here. At the suffrage meeting, you can hear some plain things and see them too. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Not, and, only, um... not only do they want the vote, they're ugly. Uh, <laughs> just... Ugly women. That, but that's the thing, is it? That's what always gets leveled at feminists, even today. Absolutely. Is, well, of course they're feminists because no man wants to fuck them. Exactly. It was like, you know, it's not you a know. vote you want, it's a bloke. Blokes yeah. for women. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, so the happy wife and mother is never passionately concerned about suffrage, wrote one anti suffragist. Mm. Blokes for women was the punch cartoon. Jesus. And they say there's no right wing comedy. I know. Brilliant. Doctors would write to the Times saying that the militant actions of the suffragettes was due to a mania related to epilepsy. <laughs> this is like, it's like the back on our um, bicycling suffragettes episode. Yeah. Yeah. Every time a woman tried to fight for her rights, they would medicalize it, they would make it some. Disorders. You remember bicycle right. face and yeah, you yeah. know things that just oh, it's to do their their wombs are off. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's something. It's quite a lot about doctors being um, effective campaigners against women's suffrage. Of course, doctors would be incredibly posh as well back then. There yeah. was a constant theme also that the the noisy suffragettes didn't speak for the respectable majority of women. The shrieking sisterhood, they called them. And then they felt it was time for the contented majority of women to speak up in defence of the current situation. If their husbands let them. Absolutely. You can say, oh, it's just the noisy few, but we were in a situation where women couldn't speak for themselves. What forum did they have to do that if they're housewives and, you yes. know, it's not like they could go on Twitter, is it? Absolutely. And- One MP, I've got, I'll read this quote out to you. Women's political incapacity results from many causes, but principally from that excess of sympathy in the mental constitution of woman which shuts out from their mind logical power and judicial impartiality. It's got you there, Angela. Yep, yeah, you got me. Sorry. I... <laughs> um, so the case against, really, to sum it up, was, it was, it was political reasons not to have it, the medical, psychological, <laughs> sociological, imperialist, military and philanthropic because all their work for charities. When you add all of that together, it's incredible what these groups of women achieve absolutely you yeah know, it is there are there are there are women who had no agency and yet yeah. managed to change the political system in this country but yeah. a lot of people then felt they had to be stopped angela so in 1908 action was taken and you know things are getting serious when someone writes a letter to the times oh so that might be a good place to take a break <laughs> But just before yes, the official campaign gets going, Angela's going to go off and make John a cup of tea. Yes. Faint from the exhaustion after thinking about all this political stuff. <laughs> I know my head, John, it's like it's filled with butterflies. I can't, I need to go make sense of it all. Well, I don't know much about the gold standard, but I do love fluffy kittens. <laughs> 
Have you seen that brilliant Harry Enfield sketch? <laughs> Women, know your limits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll take a break. See you in a minute. Welcome back to We Are History. We're talking about the campaign against women's suffrage. Um, yeah. You know, something I'm very interested in. Yeah, something John's very passionate about, as we learn. <laughs> no, I think what's interesting is you get a version of history. You get so much about dramatisations of the suffragettes or films or, you know, the heroes set in Edwardian dramas would be pro-suffrage. And then you have to think, well, why, why did it not just happen straight away? And then you go, of course, mm. most people were against it. And it really was most people. Yeah. And you have to think, well, why? It makes you understand what a... The past is a foreign country, Angela. They do things differently there. Absolutely, John. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but it is interesting because I think we just sort of, like you say, we know about the suffragettes and the suffragists and what they did, but but what they were up against, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the inherent problem with a woman's organisation campaigning against women's involvement in politics was that they were just, whenever they're any good... <laughs> It just showed that they should be involved in politics. So uh, at the anti-suffrage, because it was mostly women. It was started with women, this organisation. Mm. Posh women, it should be said. Lords and la- la- sorry, yeah. ladies, most of the antis were very upper class women. And it'd be, oh, that's a good speech. Very well organised uh, meeting, Daphne. These women are good at this, aren't they? So, yeah. No, no. <laughs> it's just proving their own... The, or the opposition's point. Exactly. Order. There's something quite yeah. lovely about that. Yeah, the more effective they were, the more the suffragists could point to their suitability to have the vote. We're really good at this, aren't <laughs> we? Organising and getting people involved in politics. Look how yeah. good we are at it. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's a quote here from a woman called Octavia Hill, who in uh, 1910 was asked by Lord Cromer to sign an anti-suffrage letter for the press. The very thing which makes me feel how fatal it would be for women to be drawn into the political arena precludes me signing the letter and joining in what must be a political campaign. So, ah, nice. So, so she's got him there. Octavia Hill, she was um, she was quite a famous social reformer, wasn't she? She was co-founder of the National Trust. She was friends with John Ruskin and um, okay. was quite okay. sort of well-known uh, with... with um, housing and stuff in London. So these were all very influential women who yeah. were very busy in their own form of what we would recognise as politics, but they didn't see it as, you know, Westminster politics. And so they, there was a strong yeah. feeling that you would lose all these women from the National Trust or the charities because they'd yeah. start shouting at Westminster, which was a very unladylike thing to do. Often there were other women who were just simply less experienced and political. You mm. know, the suffragists have been going for half a century. A woman called Jane Courtney complained that a titled lady used to delay their committee meetings badly. She never mastered the difference between minutes and agenda, and having always had second thoughts since the last committee, she treated its decisions when read out in the minutes merely as material for fresh discussion. Now, I have to say, <laughs> I've, that's been, in not, committees I've like that. been in many Labour Party meetings like that. It's Definitely. like somebody mentioned something in the minutes. Shall we have the whole debate all over again? No, no. we're just improving the minutes. <laughs> oh, God, I've been there so many times. Yeah. So um, it's, you know, it's hard to campaign for mm. no change. That's it. But it's never exciting, is it? Just defending the status quo. So I guess the, the organisation, the antis, their best chance was lobbying behind the scenes. Right? Yes. They weren't getting much traction in the public sphere. So you lobby in the men's club of the House of Commons. But yes. obviously, um, you know, not the women. They weren't allowed in there. <laughs> but Lord Cromer and Lord, Lord Cromer Curzon. and Curzon hold 
closed meetings inside Westminster. That's something obviously the other side couldn't do. Yes. They didn't have the access. They had one big rally, actually, in, uh, in 1912. Mm. The suffragettes in 1912 described the sort of people who attended the League's Albert Hall meeting on 28th of February as the audience was one composed very largely of rich and titled people and the proportion of peers and their wives was extraordinarily large. So this Look was my surprised who... face. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Oh, really? Was it? It was talk about a referendum, wasn't there? That, which is, I mean, the logic in that is brilliant. Right, we want to know whether women can have the vote. So we'll hold a referendum. But of course, the women can't vote on it. So we'll just ask the current male voters oh, what they think. Nitpicking, nitpicking, nitpicking. I mean, you can't say fairer than that, can you, John? <laughs> yeah, there was actually a suggestion that we could include the women who can vote at a local level. But then they, people said, oh, no, they're not, they're not going to. That's not going to be fair to include the women. I mean, there was a general sense that extending the franchise diluted the importance of the votes that the people who held them currently had. Yes, it's called democracy, mate. Democracy, yes, that's <laughs> the idea. Yeah, it's, it's so, and this sort of presumption that all women would vote as one block, like that they wouldn't divide into the political parties that they that did. That they yes, did. yes. No, it would be like <laughs> women would all vote against war or all vote yeah. against X or Y. Of course, you know that women were as diverse this in their is, opinions as the men. But this idea of women being a a sort of amorphous blob of people who still persist today like in comedy yeah there's this idea you know that female comedians are all the same that there's no nuance they all do the same you know like it's a genre got to do a period joke Angela. you got to, yeah but do you know what i mean like that all of us are the same whereas yeah. the men are individual. we've got a woman it's on the panel weird we've already got a woman on the panel so we're oh right. my god the times i've heard that yeah the times yeah. i've heard that um for a long time certain panel shows would only have one woman on yeah and it was if like, that. well, that's that genre tip, yeah. you know. Yet they'd have two male comics on of exactly the same genre. You know, you'd have two one-liner comics on. And you're like, well, right. they're more similar to each other than I am to, say, Sarah Pascoe. Yeah, or yeah. To, you know, but we're in the same box just because of the genitals we're packing. It's insane. <laughs> no, it's very true. But so this idea that women voting would transform politics and it would become... Mm. And the other thing was that women were the slight majority in the population, especially after the First World War, of course. Oh, yes. Uh, but that's coming yeah. up. But, um, you know, men would be outnumbered by this monstrous regiment. So... Um... <laughs> monstrous regiment. Oh, my God. I want, I'm writing that down. No, that's an old quote, I think. And it's a, there was a theatre company... I still company, love it. There's a, there was a theatre company called Monstrous Regiment um, based on this uh, description of... Oh, was there? Militant oh. women. So anyway, as I was saying, we, we talked about the letter to the Times uh, from various women opposed to the suffrage, and it prompted a petition that saw 37,000 signatures in a fortnight which eventually wow. rose to 337,000 signatures against women getting the vote, which was actually a larger total than any suffrage petition since, um, since the 1870s. Wow. So they decided they were going to start an actual organisation. Lady Jersey chaired the inaugural meeting of the Women's National Anti-Suffrage League at Westminster Palace Hotel, 21st of July, 1908. Lady Havisham gave a report on what had been achieved so far. <laughs> But she would be sitting there in her wedding dress. I know. Oh, very erudite <laughs> reference there. Thank from you. Our thank you very much. <laughs> so yes, the, the Times exhorted their their efforts, um, calling them to get organised and start using the same campaigning methods as the people who were in favour of suffrage. Branches have sprang up all over England of the Women's National Anti-Suffrage League. They paid up subscribers. They published a, uh, their own paper, the Anti-Suffrage oh, Review. That was a good read. Page seven, fella. <laughs> 
topless fireman. <laughs> um, but they had uh, they had ten thousand paid up members after a few months. That was pretty good going. They claimed that the yeah. suffragists had only had twenty thousand members after forty years, which I'm not sure is true. No. And then the following year, it was thought that there should be a men's anti-suffrage league, and then they were merged. And who do you think took over, Angela, when the men's anti-suffrage league merged with the women's anti-suffrage league? I imagine what happened, John, is the men said, now, ladies, it looks like you've got this, so we think you should be in charge. No, no, that, that wasn't what happened, no? Angela. No. Is it not? Can you believe it? It's the, wow. the men the just men took over. The men take over, over yeah, completely. Yeah, see, it's just not what you think, is it? How unlike men. Irony is flashing up on our Zoom screens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So as I said, the leading anti-suffragists were Lord Cromer and Lord Curzon. They were posh old men, imperialists who'd been governor of Egypt or whatever. Oh, uh, who'd have thought, thought it? it? Exactly. <laughs> Lord Curzon generously supplied a large portrait of himself to hang in the office of the League. That's such a Trumpian thing to do, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. That's yeah. here. Have this massive picture of me. Why wouldn't you want it? Lucky ladies. Why wouldn't you, you lucky ladies? So yes. Yeah, so it now became the National League for opposing women's suffrage. And uh, the old, many of the women's, the pre, you know, the uh, pre-existing women's branches carried on as they were. But the men, the two men, Lord Cromer and Curzon, they privately complained, it's in their letters, about the difficulty of working with all these women. <laughs> well, this is a problem. If you're anti-women, but you need women yeah. to be part of your cause, you've got a problem there, haven't yeah. you? <laughs> I mean, they, got, they, they managed to raise a lot of money. They're well connected, so they got a lot of donations. Uh, they paid men wearing sandwich boards to walk around London with signs saying, women do not want the vote. Jesus. Well, of course they paid men to do it. It's not a job for a lady, is it? It's <laughs> so bizarre. To walk it's... around London in a sandwich board. Yeah. So it did actually start to have some impact because though support for women's suffrage have been steadily growing over the decades, and you can see this in the parliamentary votes because there were often divisions on you know amendments for suffrage. There were male supporters of uh, women's suffrage in the House of Commons who would attach amendments to various bills. But you can see the votes gaining through the late Victorian age and through the early Edwardian age. But uh, with this coordinated counter campaign, the situation starts to reverse and the antis uh, were becoming successful. And of course, for the government, during all of this, the issue itself wasn't forefront of the government's attention at the no, time. No, certainly You've got not. Home rule in Ireland, the power struggle within the Lords, free trade, disestablishment of the Welsh Church. Oh, that's a massive of, one! Disestablishment of the Welsh Church. One. Come on! <laughs> I mean, where are the films about that? Where are the films about the disestablishment of the Welsh Church? That's what I want to know, Angela. Rise of Germany. There you go. There's oh, that's your films. That's more. That's better. Um, you know, all of that stuff. Asquith, Herbert Asquith, who's Prime Minister, is concerned with that except for when they were throwing red pepper in his face and assaulting him with a dog whip <laughs> yeah that's well but maybe yeah, he might have taken a little bit of notice at those points <laughs> well that was sort of why i think the women resorted to those methods because yeah. they were getting nowhere so the, the women's social and political unions adoption of violence towards uh, property and, and occasionally individuals that marked a real change and um yeah. at the time it split the movement because militant forces said look we've been gaining ground all this time but suddenly, yeah. when there was violence in the papers and uh, shock and horror at the tactics of the suffragettes, um, the votes started to go against them. People didn't want to be associated with the violence of the suffragettes. So the votes in the House of Commons started to get uh, uh, less in favour of the suffragettes, suffragists. And uh, Millicent Fawcett was furious with them, of course. She said, look, we've been ga gaining ground over all these years. Mm, um, it just wasn't fast enough for the suffragettes. Yeah. There wasn't enough ground. It's a, it's a tricky thing, isn't it, that sort of, well, I mean, it's a debate that's going on at the moment about protest and sort yeah. of curbing protests and things because, you know, peaceful protest is is a way of displaying your 
um, feelings on a subject, but to to sort of actually make change, there has to be a level of disruption. Yeah, I think so. I know, usually, I, I, you know, because otherwise you won't be noted. You know, what's the point in sitting quietly in a... Yeah. If you, and, if you, it, and it's where the line is, isn't it? That's absolutely. I think, you know, if you threaten life or something, clearly we, no, I think we'd yeah. both be against that. But if you look at something like the, the campaign to get rid of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol, there were petitions, there were letters to the mm. paper, nothing happened for decades. And yeah. suddenly a bunch of angry people pull it down, throw it in the harbour, and it's never coming back. And yeah. good luck to those guys because it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't done it. No one's, exactly. no one's life is in danger. Yeah, I think that's the line, isn't it? You've got, you've got to cause a level of disruption to get noticed and, and to be something that has to be dealt with. Yeah. Because if you don't have to be, if you could just be left there protesting till kingdom come otherwise, can't you? And yeah. Nothing you know, you don't affect change that way. Absolutely. So you put yourself up the political agenda by sort of, you know, uh, breaking windows and creating great inconvenience, setting fire to letterboxes. Uh, they mm. did, I mean, they did, they did go a bit far sometimes. They set fire to yeah, some schools. Yeah, this is what we you know. say about where the line yeah. is, you know. Yeah, there was arson on public buildings and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, Emily Davison lost her own life throwing herself in front of the king's horse, horse. at the derby yeah. but the law-abiding suffragists found themselves tainted with criminal damage and they would then have their tables tipped over or the displays attacked landladies would no longer put them up when they were touring the country campaigning because they feared violence so that's the whole movement became tainted with this and uh, i mean the police and government obviously were brutal with suffragettes with yes. um, you know they would hunger strike in prison, so they would be force fed. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of force feed. Yeah, that, yes, it's a not back deeply, in those days. Deep, horrible tubes down the throat and everything. Yeah. Deeply um, violent and violating process. Absolutely. And, and then the, I think it was it in 1913, the Cat and Mouse Act, which is um, essentially they would release hunger striking prisoners from prison until they got well enough to be put back in prison. Yes. So, you know, you just go, you go to prison, be on hunger strike. To a point where you got ill, then you'd yeah. be released, got well, yeah, back in prison. Yeah, and plenty, but plenty of people at this time felt that these women had brought it upon themselves with their violent acts and assaulting Asquith on the golf courses or whatever. Um, and it wasn't this wasn't political violence in the sense that it looked like it might overthrow the established order, like the fear of revolution after the Napoleonic Wars or before the Great Reform Act. This was sort of what they called stunt violence. Right. It was about grabbing headlines. But it was clearly damaging to the cause in the short term. Millicent Fawcett said in the summer of 1912 that the militants were, at this moment, the chief obstacles in the way of the success of the suffrage movement in the House of Commons and far more formidable opponents of it than Mr Asquith and Mr Harcourt. So she's going, the biggest problem with our campaign is that Pankhurst and her lot are smashing everything up. Mm. Um, so I think that's an interesting debate. Be, yeah. yeah. So... The antis obviously used the behaviour of the suffragettes yeah. to, to further their cause. They say, well, look at these disruptive women. This is how they might behave in Parliament, you know, yeah. throwing themselves in front of any racehorses that might be passing through the House of Commons. You know, <laughs> you, you can't have that, yeah, yeah. can you? So, so Lord Curzon was confident enough to say at the League's general meeting that the anti-suffrage cause stands in a stronger position at the present moment in all parts of the United Kingdom than it has done at any time during the past 20 years. That was in June 1914. The following week, the Archduke <laughs> Ferdinand was assassinated at Sarajevo. The Great War oh. breaks out and that would change everything. Absolutely. So uh, all the militant and uh, peaceful campaigning stopped as the whole country focused on war work. The Pankhursts discontinued militancy. The WSPU was sort of divided on pacifism. Um, right. Well, the women instead just threw themselves into 
work, like replacing all the men that had gone to the front. That's, exactly. They yeah. had a role in the war effort. And yeah. That... Pre-1914, like all secretaries were men. And after right. 19, and hardly anywhere, all the men were going, oh, I quite like having this pretty young lady as my secretary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it this way. Let's, Let's keep it this way. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that man back. No. Yes, yeah. but as the war wore on, there was almost universal admiration for the way women had accomplished previously male roles. So they sort of walked the wall, women, basically. Yeah. And throughout the war, uh, there was agitation that all the men in the trenches deserved the vote. And then to extend the vote to these men, but not all the women doing their jobs at home, that no longer felt just. Yeah. So the anti-suffrage people were suddenly really on the back foot. They complained their position has been taken in the flank by a wave of sentimentality. Oh, yeah, sentimentality about the cannon yes. fodder being sent yeah. to the front in a terribly unjust war. Exactly. Oh, stop being so sentimental. Um, yeah. Well, this is it, because obviously the, you know, working class men were the well, cannon fodder yeah. for that. And to come back and not have a vote was yeah. suddenly people realised why they should have the vote. So... History basically says that the violence of the suffragettes was detrimental to their cause and that it was the war and what happened during the war which led to women getting the vote. But actually, I think there's an argument for the fact that that people remembered what happened with the suffragettes. They yes. didn't want to return to that. And, Absolutely and they right. knew that if women didn't get the vote after the Great War, then there was a chance that the violence and the protests would return. Exactly. So, so the window so smashing actually, did make a difference, but only after it stopped, as it were. <laughs> so, yeah, because so, they didn't want it to start yeah, again. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that's what disruption is. That's what protest is. So, yeah, because yeah. I was taught this at school. I remember I was taught it wasn't the suffragettes. It was the what women did in the war. And it was true in terms of mm. right on the ground at that moment, public opinion. But there's no way they were not going to give the women vote for how much you know, disruption it had caused before the war. Yeah. And Asquith yeah. changed his position in 1917. He was no longer the prime minister, actually. Um, he changed his mind. Cromer died, uh, leaving the anti-league uh, without leadership as Curzon was busy with his war work. Um, and uh, you could, you know, the country just sort of without a great deal of fuss was completely shifting its opinion on this sort of major issue. I love some of the arguments for, you know, the antis still that put up some resistance. Didn't they say that war work doesn't automatically mean that women should get the vote because they you know they worked hard during the war because if that's the case then we should also john give it to boy scouts and who the girl, also worked the, hard during the war and the girl guides angela and the girl guides <laughs> and the brownies why not the brownies the brownie exist then? i don't know if they did yeah um, yeah i mean the, the antis kept saying that the war proved the different spheres of men and women um but also that with a mil nearly a million men dying women voters would become uh, the majority shock horror yeah shock horror how we can't have that <laughs> but the league's activities virtually dried up and its members were focused uh, on more important issues, on the war, uh, and the country branches were virtually non-existent by 1917. It was 1917 when the bill was going through the House of Commons. The government had to give the vote to those in the trenches and it wasn't going to deny women or just some um, women the some vote women. as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the suffrage bill going through Parliament couldn't quite stomach total equality, could it? It it proposed giving women over 30 the vote, which, do you know what? I agree with that. I, <laughs> yeah, I know. Because women in their I, 20s, they're all giggly, aren't they? They're all giggly. That's and right. On I mean, you don't just know your own mind in your 20s, do you? Come on. <laughs> Fluffy-headed things. That's yeah. right. So uh, in a desperate sort of uh, pitch here, the antis were so desperate to try and stop it that they tried to make the bill more equal. And they put an amendment in saying oh, it should be 21 for all. And they thought if that got through, then the bill might fall in the House of Commons so there'd be no votes for women, which is a pretty yeah. sneaky tactic. Yeah, they tried yeah. to resurrect the idea of the referendum and they lost that amendment too. And that was the moment when they thought, oh, we, we're defeated, we're guys. 
The bill was passed overwhelmingly in 1917 uh, with much less passion and excitement than previous debates. You just come out of the Great War, which kind of puts things in perspective. Yeah, yeah, it was actually yeah. 1917, but yeah, we're still so we're still uh, oh, in yeah, the war. Yeah, still in the, yeah. Some some concern that this revolution in Russia is going to be, or oh, the you know these ladies get the votes, it's going to be socialism like uh, like in Petrograd, but uh, yeah. <laughs> possibly not. But it was 341 votes to 62, which is amazing wow. how far they'd come just the change in the war. Yeah. But then another twist in all this, as the debate came to the House of Lords, because, you know, it still had to, the Lords was more powerful than it is today. Lord Curzon, who was the leader of the House in the Lords, he gave a long speech. And at the end, he shocked everyone by announcing that he himself um, would abstain. So leader of the antis is not voting against women's suffrage. He didn't wow. vote the League that he was going to do this or resign in advance. He basically stabbed his own organisation in the back. Wow. What were his reasons for that? Just because he knew which way the wind was blowing, I suppose. Because he was leader of the house, I think, and he had to sort of support yeah. the government. So when a female anti-suffragist complained to Millicent Fawcett, she said, that's what comes from trusting your men friends. Oh, Mike burn. Drop, burn. <laughs> yes. That's what comes from trusting your men friends. Yeah, I see all these years. <laughs> so the bill was passed. It was all over the league. And its reserve fund of five grand, which was quite a lot back then, that was mm. handed to the Royal National Pension Fund for nurses. Lovely nurses. Um, the last edition of Anti-Suffrage Review was, was published. No regrets. Proud of the stand they'd taken. They'd gone down with their flag waving. But political correctness had gone mad. And even afterwards, I mean, there was still resentment and continued discrimination. It's not like, yeah, oh, well, yeah. that's women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. In yeah, <laughs> Oxford University in uh, 1920, they passed a motion that this House regrets the recent triumph oh. of the feminist movement and they passed a resolution that the women's colleges be levelled to the ground. Jesus Christ. Shocking, isn't it? it really is. And the suffragists continued to campaign for equal votes for women. Their job wasn't done. No. Um, for, for quite some time, was it? Um, they achieved a, a decade later, yeah. in 1928, equal votes for women. Yeah. And of course, the first woman MP was Constance Markovitz. Yeah. Um, always a good pub then, quiz question. Always a good pub quiz question. And uh, then Nancy Astor in 1919. Nancy Astor taking her seat, of seat, course, as yeah. the first. So obviously, Constant Markovitz was Sinn Féin? No. Yeah, Sinn Féin. Yeah, Sinn Féin. Yeah. So yeah, didn't so she, take her seat in yeah, but She was the first one elected in 1918. Yeah. Nancy Astor in Plymouth in 1919. One of the Astors listened to the Profumo mm. podcast about that family. But they did actually need separate legislation to allow women to stand for Parliament. First woman prime minister was only 60 years later, which is not that long, is it? If you think about it. I suppose it. In, the, in the context of history. Of where but, we um, were in 1917. Sort of I mean, that's pretty yeah. amazing. I just wish it hadn't been that one. I know. She said she, you know? she said that she owed nothing to the women's movement. She oh. got there through her own hard work. Yes, dear. So uh. thank you, uh, Brian Harrison, for your book, Separate Spheres. It's very interesting. Um, well done to those fine women of the uh, suffragists and suffragettes. Yeah. Not so much. Not. I mean, I'm going to tough luck the women's against suffrage. You know, <laughs> tough luck league against women's suffrage. You look ridiculous, and we're glad you failed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad you failed, John. I think is a bit more on the fence. And Angela, do you know what? I've heard the arguments down. I don't mind that you have the vote. You know, I'm actually in favour of it, and and you can't get much more progressive than that. <laughs> Well, Angela. thank you, John. I appreciate Just use that. it responsibly and try and think logically. Well, obviously what I'll do, John, is every time I vote, I'll run it by you first. That's check. probably best. You know. I think you know which way I go. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a big secret. I tweeted, there was local elections last week, and I tweeted, just voted, but never say 
who for because I've written two <laughs> whole books and somebody was back yeah. to me quite right I think it's really outrageous when people ask you what you vote and I was like loads of people piled on him mate look at his Amazon <laughs> that's hilarious um, oh, so dear. thank you Spike our brilliant got up early producer yeah but I mean poor Spike Spike's in his 20s and we got him up before 9 o'clock this morning so thank you Spike um, <laughs> uh, thank you for all your lovely uh, reviews messages uh, it's great to know that you're enjoying it recommend it to a yes. friend give it please five stars please do keep tweeting us at we are history pod give us five stars five on stars on Uber iTunes and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next week when Angela's doing war War! What is it good for? We'll see you next week. Bye.